It's often we hear how our leaders as children demonstrate a unique skill or interest that then lends itself to their career or struggle down the line. George Washington couldn't tell a lie. Joan of Arc had her first vision at 13. Teddy Roosevelt overcame asthma. Franklin Roosevelt contracted polio. Hitler failed art school. Stalin robbed banks. Well, for Ulysses S. Grant, his thing was horses. From an early age, Grant demonstrated an understanding and communion with horses that many trained equestrians never achieve. Throughout his life, he impressed everyone with his horsemanship. If a horse proved difficult to break, Ulysses could find a way. Grant biographer Brooke Simpson writes that if it weren't for Grant's talent with horses and also maybe his father's bombastic nature, the boy would have led an unremarkable childhood. Grant preferred to travel on horseback. He courted his wife Julia on horseback. Much of his command during the Civil War was performed on horseback. His preferred cure for the headaches he experienced over the course of his life was driving horses fast. Typically reserved in mixed company, if the subject of conversation turned to horses, he would come alive. Grant almost never lost his cool. But one time when he witnessed an officer beating an uncooperative horse about its face, he reportedly exploded in anger. Hi, my name is Henry Kronk. Welcome to another episode of Ulysses Under Fire, a podcast about the early life of Civil War General and American President Ulysses S. Grant. Today we're talking about his preternatural horsemanship. Joining me on this episode is Denise Dowdle, author of From Cincinnati to the Colorado Ranger, The Horsemanship of Ulysses S. Grant. That seems appropriate. Here's Denise. I suppose nowadays we'd probably call him some sort of a horse whisperer. Uh, he also was, was quite fascinated by them too. So I think it's just a combination of um, getting experience. And of course, his father had, seemed to have endless confidence in his son. You know, he, he really promoted him. So Grant first sat on horseback, well, ponyback, before he had turned two. A traveling circus was in town and a trained pony caught Ulysses' eye. The ringmaster invited audience members to ride it. Ulysses was put on its back and held in place as the pony circled the ring. According to Simpson, in this moment, he manifested more glee than he had ever shown before. As a young child, Ulysses liked to go out to his family's stables and, you know, just hang out with the horses. According to Simpson, a neighbor came by once, saw this toddler playing around under the feet of these 600-pound farm animals, and understandably expressed their concern to his mother. The steadfast Hannah Grant replied simply, Horses seem to understand Ulysses, which is just so reassuring when one encounters a child in a life-threatening situation. Over the coming years, Ulysses learns to properly ride horses himself. By age five, he can stand on the back of a horse, moving at a trot, holding on to the reins for balance. Again, very safe parenting here. By age six, he can harness a horse himself and ride it to perform basic functions around the family farm. 
When his father set up a livery business, Ulysses was often the one tasked with driving the horses as they transported people and goods around the nearby area. By age nine, Grant saves up his own money and buys his own horse. Even as a child, Ulysses makes a name for himself as someone who can break and tame just about any horse. Many folks from the area bring colts or distempered horses to Ulysses for him to work his magic on. Sometimes his dad would trick Ulysses into helping neighbors with horses. Here's Denise. Yeah, it was just a local farmer who um, had a, a horse that he wanted to teach how to pace. So his father, Jesse, said, oh, oh, you know, maybe, maybe you could take this, uh, this, this man's horse and post this letter for him. And um, Ulysses did. Uh, but of course, the, the whole purpose of the exercise was to, to get him to pace and uh, not to post the letter. So, but he didn't like this kind of trickery. I think he found it uh, very hard to understand. He tends to be very straight in these matters. Um, and also, to, uh, I think he was asked to break in horses a lot, but he never did it for money. There was um, a, another guy uh, in, in the area called John Rary, who ended up being uh, one of Queen Victoria's horse trainers, actually. And he used to do it for money. But Grant didn't like doing this for money. Uh, it was something joyful that he enjoyed doing. And uh, perhaps uh, doing it for money wouldn't, uh, wouldn't be the same. When Grant was 11, another circus came to town. As part of the act, this show brought out a pony and dared the local boys to try and ride it. Of course, Ulysses took the bait, but as the ringmaster sent it galloping around the ring trying to throw its rider, Grant hung on. Then the ringmaster played his trump card and threw a monkey onto Ulysses' head. These are the kinds of things that went down in the circus ring in the 1830s. The monkey held on to Grant's hair and stared down into his face while the pony continued to gallop and presumably the crowd laughed and laughed, but Ulysses held on. In another show, the ringmaster walked out a pony whose back had been slicked with grease and offered $5 to any boy who could hang on. Our guy Ulysses made an easy $5 that day. All this time, Ulysses doesn't just demonstrate a savant-like ability with horses. He also likes to ride fast. He likes to perform dangerous stunts like jumping obstacles and standing up while riding. On foot, he's this awkward and gangly kid. On horseback, he is graceful. Boys being boys, many Georgetown youths tried to follow suit and keep up. One boy from the neighboring Bailey family was trying to imitate Ulysses when his horse shied, fell on him, and crushed him to death. This is the first of many people who will meet with injury or death while riding with Grant. This behavior of his, furthermore, will only escalate into faster and more daring rides throughout his life. And despite the body count that racks up involving Grant in horseback riding, he himself goes without serious injury except for a handful of exceptions. Here's Denise. If anyone rode with Grant, they rode at, at their peril because he seemed to be completely oblivious of uh, his own safety, his own physical safety. He seemed to be a total risk taker when it came to riding horses. 
a lot of people that that went into his that came into his orbit you know ended up losing their lives there were several people in mexico for instance uh, there was uh, a man who uh, in fact grant killed on the road and grant was involved in a horse race uh, with some of his mates at the time and his horse clipped the um, the man's head and he died. Grant never saw this. It was only people taking up the rear who actually saw it and they kept it from him. They only told him later in life uh, because they didn't want to upset him. And the other time he, um, he took out a young Mexican friend who re greatly admired the horses uh, that Grant rode and perhaps wanted to to impress him as well. He rode out with Grant uh, and uh, I think on a borrowed horse and um, somewhere along the line um, the horse threw this young Mexican friend over a gorge and that was the end of him. So this is a constant theme throughout his life. Now even Julia had problems. Now she wasn't, she was an accomplished horsewoman but she wasn't, I think she had a more practical approach to horses um, I think she was uh, more aware of the risks you know she wasn't into these harem scarum rides and she herself would would uh, sometimes uh, refuse to go any further with Grant in the buggy if he was going too fast and she would just say let me out I'm getting out here this is this is too fast for me this is too dangerous like it's it's I think it's kind of amazing that Grant wasn't killed earlier in life than he was I think it's it's amazing in a way that he lived to be 63 years of age. And I suppose it's appropriate that the worst injury of his life came because of a horse riding accident. And this was the accident down in New Orleans when he was at a review. Again, he was riding a very fiery horse. He couldn't resist them. Uh, I think uh, this was a horse that was described as vicious and ill-used or little used and for, but for some reason Grant couldn't resist him and uh, he during this review it was to celebrate the victory of Vicksburg uh, he rode this horse and the horse shied uh, at a locomotive and took off and eventually uh, collapsed and fell on the road and pinned Grant underneath him and uh, he, um, he had a serious injury to his left uh, hip that he never really recovered from, I think, in his uh, for the rest of his life. You know, how ironic that this is somebody that went through the Mexican War, went through the virtually the entire uh, Civil War, and emerged virtually without a, a, a scratch or a serious injury anyway. But the main injury of his life is uh, down at our view uh, of troops down in New Orleans. Now, here's a weird transition. So, as we know, Grant's father, Jesse, was a tanner. He manufactured leather out of the hides of livestock. And tanning in the 1800s was disgusting. Truly, truly, it was so, so, so gross. I will now describe that process. And if hearing about how leather is made and the disgusting details of it is not your thing, 
I will encourage you to fast forward exactly two minutes ahead. All right, here we go. So to begin, an animal is either slaughtered at the tannery or is skinned at the slaughterhouse or farm and brought to the tanner. The hide is then cured with salt to preserve it and then soaked in water. The tanner separates any flesh, fat, or sinew that might still be hanging on and then transfers the hide to a vat of lye solution. This will allow the hairs and epidermis to be easily scraped off, which the tanner accomplishes by hand with a knife. Sometimes I've read when lye was not available, this solution would be composed out of some ferment. And if that wasn't readily available, urine would also do the trick. Although I do not believe Jesse ever resorted to these methods. Next, the hide is soaked in vats of tannic acid, which is made from plant tannins. This tannic acid would have been derived from tan bark, probably from the bark of a hemlock or oak tree. The hide sits in the solution and slowly marinates as the leather becomes more durable and somewhat impervious to water. After about six months, the raw leather is ready to go. So let's recap. On any day of the week, you are bringing in the hides of freshly slaughtered livestock and discarding whatever tissue might still be attached. Then you're discarding lye-soaked hairs and epidermis layers. Through it all, you're dealing with lye and tannic acid solutions. Besides the putrefying flesh that's left around, that tannic acid in particular smells really bad. Vermin like rats and insects are hanging around throughout. This is not a glamorous occupation. Okay, my description of the disgusting details of tanning are over for now. So Grant would have been abundantly aware of what was going on in his father's tannery. Not only was the business located right across the street from the Grant's house in Georgetown, but Ulysses' bedroom window looked out on it directly. The fumes emanating within regularly wafted across the street. You may not be surprised to learn that this sensitive boy never expresses interest in going into the family business. In fact, he actively avoids anything that might bring him into its orbit. We can only imagine what Grant thinks of his father who routinely processes the dead carcasses of horses as his primary means of living. We do know that Grant could never eat meat that was raw or swimming in its juices. It would make him sick. All his life, he only ate meat that was essentially burnt to a crisp. Now, Ulysses was expected throughout his childhood to perform work for his family throughout the week while also attending school. As you might expect, he always opted for non-tannery duties. Here's how he tells it in his memoirs. Quote, while my father carried on the manufacture of leather and worked at the trade himself, he owned and tilled considerable land. I detested the trade, preferring almost any other labor, but I was fond of agriculture and of all employment in which horses were used. When about 11 years old, I was strong enough to hold a plow. From that age until 17, I did all the work done with horses, such as breaking up the land, furrowing, plowing corn and potatoes, bringing in the crops when harvested, hauling all the wood besides tending two or three horses, a cow or two, and sawing wood for stoves, etc., while still attending school. 
For this, I was compensated by the fact that there was never any scolding or punishing by my parents. No objections to rational enjoyments such as fishing, going to the creek a mile away to swim in the summer, taking a horse and visiting my grandparents in the adjoining county 15 miles off, skating on the ice in the winter, or taking a horse and sleigh when there was snow on the ground. End quote. As Grant grows more adept and confident on horseback, he discovers he loves to travel. Beginning as young as age eight, he takes trips on his own to visit his grandparents, like he just mentioned. He also goes to visit friends and relations even further throughout Ohio and northern Kentucky. As mentioned earlier, he often runs his father's livery service, which transported goods and people around the nearby area. A common destination was Cincinnati, a 40-mile trip one way. He often transported folks much further afield. He tells us in his memoirs that he once helped a family move to Toledo, Ohio, a 250-mile trip. He once brought back two young ladies to Georgetown from Louisville. On the way, they came upon a flooded river. Ulysses, of course, leads the whole train straight forward. The carriage in which the ladies are riding enters the stream and sinks underwater. They get soaked up to their waists and, unused to the rough nature of these travel arrangements, start freaking out and screaming. Ulysses just turns around and says, Don't speak. I will take you through safe. Though Ulysses actively avoids the family trade, his father, Jesse, is really proud of his abilities and everything he does. And like other things he's very proud of, Jesse brags about Ulysses constantly to anyone who will stick around to listen. For example, as an adolescent, Ulysses devised a way to haul large timbers with a team of two, a job that would normally require several grown men. On another occasion, he hauled a massive stone from the nearby White Oak Creek up a steep hill to the home of a local doctor who wanted it placed by his front door. Jesse bragged and bragged about these exploits. The average listener might get annoyed by this bragging, but if you recall, Jesse Root Grant is also making a name for himself as an exceptionally loud Whig in a predominantly Democrat town. And when a very loud political opponent starts bragging, even about non-political issues, that can rankle. In some cases, this got young Ulysses into trouble. For example, Ulysses tells the following story of the first ever horse purchase he made, also at age eight. Here's how he writes it in his memoirs. Quote, there was a Mr. Ralston living within a few miles of the village who owned a colt which I very much wanted. My father had offered $20 for it, but Ralston wanted 25 I was so anxious to have the colt that, after the owner left, I begged to be allowed to take him at the price demanded. My father yielded, but said $20 was all the horse was worth, and told me to offer that price. If it was not accepted, I was to offer twenty-two and a half, and if that would not get him, to give him the twenty-five. I at once mounted a horse and went for the colt. When I got to Mr. Ralston's house, I said to him, Papa says I may offer you $20 for the colt, but if you won't take that, I am to offer twenty-two and a half, and if you won't take that, to give you twenty-five. It would not require a Connecticut man to guess the price finally agreed upon. 
This story is nearly true. I certainly showed very plainly that I had come for the colt and meant to have him. I could not have been over eight years old at the time. This transaction caused me great heartburning. The story got out among boys of the village, and it was a long time before I heard the last of it. Boys enjoy the misery of their companions, at least village boys in that day did, and in later life I have found that all adults are not free from the peculiarity. End quote. As Simpson notes, many of the folks who liked to circulate this story were from Democrat families. He also makes the point that although Ulysses was highly embarrassed over this episode, it maybe wasn't as embarrassing as it should have been. He was able to sell the horse four years later for the price his father had originally pushed him to ask for. So in the end, he paid $5 for four years of service. Not all that bad in the grand scheme of things. Now, in the summer of 1839, at the age of 17, Grant enrolled as a cadet candidate at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. He'll end up graduating 21st out of a class of 39 four years later. Many folks look to this point to say that Grant was an unremarkable student, but this hides the fact that the size of his class that first year included 77 young men. There was a very high attrition rate at this school in those days. Most of those who dropped out did so in the first year or two, and the main reason they dropped out was because they couldn't hack math class. For Ulysses, however, math is one of his strong suits. When it comes to French, he barely hangs on. He's so-so at other language and science instruction. He shows a surprising aptitude when it comes to drawing, and some of the subjects of his art classes, which we still have today, are of course horses. In his second year, West Point introduces cavalry training. As before, Grant demonstrated his abilities and also helped break in these horses, which had never been used to train military cadets before. His classmates from this time remember him for his reserved manner, for playing an intermediary between students when they beefed, and of course, for his daring horsemanship. There was this one particularly moody, large sorrel horse that Grant liked to ride named York. One classmate remembers telling Grant that York would kill him one day. Typically, Grant replies, well, I can't die but once. Which is like, yeah, what point are you trying to make there? The cavalry instructor was an old Prussian sergeant named Henry Hirschberger. He had a gruff manner and was known for putting his students in dangerous situations. But of course, he was very proud of Grant. When the senior class was set to graduate, they displayed their riding abilities to the academy. To cap this demonstration off, Hirschberger trotted out Grant, who was mounted on York. Here's how classmate and future Union General James B. Fry remembers the incident. Quote, when the regular services were completed, the class, still mounted, was formed in a line through the center of the hall. The riding master placed the leaping bar higher than a man's head and called out, Cadet Grant, clean-faced, slender, blue-eyed young fellow weighing about 120 pounds, dashed from the ranks on a powerfully built chestnut sorrel horse and galloped down the opposite side of the hall. As he turned at the farther end and came into the straight stretch across which the bar was placed, the horse increased his pace, and measuring his strides for the great leap before him, 
bounded into the air and cleared the bar, carrying his rider as if man and beast had been welded together. The spectators were breathless. Very well done, sir, growled old Hirschberger, and the class was dismissed and disappeared. But Cadet Grant remained a living image in my memory. End quote. Grant set the West Point high jump record here, and it stood for the next 25 years. So when it comes to Grant and horses, here's where the rubber really meets the road. Like I said before, Grant graduates 21st in his class. Class rankings determined your post-college military assignment. The top-ranked generally went to the engineers, followed by the topographical engineers. Below this, you could qualify for artillery, and those in the middle had their choice of infantry, mounted rifles, and dragoons, or cavalry. Those at the lower end of their graduating classes often went wherever positions were available. Ulysses opted for dragoons as his first choice, but it appears there weren't any openings. So he was assigned as brevet second lieutenant to the 4th Infantry Division. This would have huge consequences. Because at this time, the US was on the brink of war with Mexico. I'm going to go into that conflict in much more detail in a later episode. But for now, Grant, along with the 4th Infantry Division, is sent down to Louisiana, to the border of the Republic of Texas, to be ready for hostilities. Ulysses now spends the better part of two years in army camps, drilling, writing letters home, and to his special lady friend Julia Dent, again, subject of a future episode, riding horses, reading novels, and otherwise sitting around in boredom. That all changes in April of 1846. General Zachary Taylor is sent to lead a force of 2,400 men, including the 4th Infantry, into territory that is claimed by both the newly created state of Texas and Mexico. A larger Mexican force opposes him. The two sides face off for some time, daring the other to blink, until the Mexican army attacks an American patrol. This is exactly what the Americans were hoping to provoke, and war is soon declared. General Taylor leads his force to relieve the besieged Fort Texas near the present-day Brownsville, where the Mexican general, Mariano Arista, meets him at what is later called the Battle of Palo Alto. Here, Grant sees his first action. At one point, Mexican artillery opens fire at close range to where he is stationed in the line. One soldier right next to Grant is completely decapitated, while another man has his jaw shot out. As dusk fell, the Mexican forces retreated. The next morning, the Americans advanced again. The captain in charge of Grant's company went ahead to reconnoiter the area, and 2nd Lieutenant Grant is placed in charge for the first time in his life. Grant leads his company through thick chaparral and eventually stumbles into an area very near the enemy, drawing fire. Grant orders everyone to lay low, and that's about the extent of that maneuver. Taylor's forces continue to advance. They relieve the besieged Fort Texas and go on to occupy the town of Matamoros. Now that war was properly underway, Taylor spends part of the summer re-outfitting and waiting for reinforcements. He transfers his command west to the town of Camargo, 
And then in August, apparently due to the abilities that Grant has demonstrated so far, Ulysses receives orders to serve as quartermaster of the 4th Infantry. It's hard to overstate the importance of this assignment. Chernow calls this appointment a godsend for Grant, and one that turned him into a complete soldier. In this role, Ulysses was tasked with providing pretty much everything for the soldiers in his division, besides arms and ammunition. Here we're talking food, cookware, uniforms, boots, blankets, tents, paper, ink, etc., etc. Perhaps more importantly, Grant is also responsible for transporting all of this materiel. He's the one who now needs to drive the teams of horses and mules alongside marching soldiers to ensure that camp is set up and furnished when they halt. Anyone who has studied military history knows that very often the fastest and best supplied army is the one that prevails. Grant would have known this himself because much of his military instruction at West Point involved the study of Napoleon, a military commander who consistently outmarched his opponents. Side note, for any sticklers out there, yes, it's true that in those days there was not much very instruction involving military tactics and practices at West Point. But there was some, and so much of it focused on Napoleon, who had fought his last battle at Waterloo in 1815, just 30 years before. Grant's first big challenge as quartermaster came in the town of Camargo, which is in mountainous terrain. Here the army switched its train from horses to mules. Here's how Grant tells it. Quote, the teams that had proven abundantly sufficient to transport all supplies from Corpus Christi to the Rio Grande over the level of prairies of Texas were entirely inadequate to the needs of the reinforced army in a mountainous country. To obviate the deficiency, pack mules were hired with Mexicans to pack and drive them. I had charge of a few of the wagons allotted to the 4th Infantry and of the pack train to supplement them. There were not men enough in the army to manage that train without the help of the Mexicans, who had learned how. As it was, the difficulty was great enough. The troops would take up their march at an early hour each day. After they had started, the tents and cooking utensils had to be made into packages so that they could be lashed onto the backs of the mules. Sheet iron kettles, tent poles, and mess chests were inconvenient articles to transport in that way. It took several hours to get ready and to start each morning, and by the time we were ready, some of the mules first loaded would be tired of standing so long with their loads on their backs. Sometimes one would start to run, bowing his back and kicking up until he scattered his load. Others would lie down and try to disarrange their loads by attempting to get on top of them by rolling on them. Others with tent poles for part of their loads would manage to run a tent pole on one side of a sapling while they would take the other. I'm not aware of ever having used a profane expletive in my life, but I would have the charity to excuse those who may have done so if they were in charge of a train of Mexican pack mules at the time." End quote. By late August, Taylor was satisfied with the state of his forces and began to advance on the city of Monterey. The army made the outskirts of the town in under three weeks. They maneuvered to the northwest to cut off supply and communications. They set up a battery and mounted an attack on the 19th of September. Grant, as quartermaster, was far behind the line, but not for long. Here's his account. Quote, 
At daylight the next morning, fire was opened on both sides and continued with what seemed to me at that day great fury. My curiosity got the better of my judgment, and I mounted a horse and rode to the front to see what was going on. I had been there but a short time when an order to charge was given, and lacking the moral courage to return to camp, where I had been ordered to stay, I charged with the regiment. As soon as the troops were out of the depression, they came under the fire of the fort. As they advanced, they got under fire from the batteries guarding the east, or lower end of the city, and of musketry. About one-third of the men engaged in the charge were killed or wounded in the space of a few minutes. We retreated to get out of fire, not backward, but eastward and perpendicular to the direct road running into the city from Walnut Springs. I was, I believe, the only person in the 4th Infantry in the charge who was on horseback." End quote. So this charge is ill-conceived. There are a lot of casualties, and the attackers fail to penetrate the enemy line. But when it comes to Grant, isn't this just typical? This guy's been hanging around the back of the action in boredom. He rides a horse up to the front lines. The order to charge is given. Grant is not supposed to be at the front. He is not supposed to be mounted on a horse, and he probably makes an easier target for that fact. Despite it all, he goes forward and comes out unscathed. Though the command of this action was flawed, other forces do make headway and fight their way into the city of Monterey. The 4th Infantry, along with Grant, join them, and they continue to make headway into the town, fighting block by block. The next day, American forces continue their investment, and later that afternoon, Grant puts on another display of horsemanship. Again from his memoirs, quote, The houses were flat-roofed and but one or two stories high, and about the plaza the roofs were manned with infantry, the troops being protected from our fire by parapets made out of sandbags. All advances into the city were thus attended with much danger. While moving along streets which did not lead to the plaza, our men were protected from the fire and from the view of the enemy except at the crossings, but at these a volley of musketry and a discharge of grapeshot were invariably encountered. The 3rd and 4th regiments of infantry made an advance nearly to the plaza in this way and with heavy loss. The loss of the 3rd infantry and commissioned officers was especially severe. There were only five companies in the regiment and not over 12 officers present, and five of these officers were killed. When within a square of the plaza, this small command, ten companies in all, was brought to a halt, placing themselves under cover from the shots of the enemy, the men would watch to detect a head above the sandbags on the neighboring houses. The exposure of a single head would bring a volley from our soldiers. We had not occupied this position long when it was discovered that our ammunition was growing low. I volunteered to go back to the point where we had started from, report our position to General Twiggs, and ask for ammunition to be forwarded. We were at this time occupying ground off the street in the rear of houses. My ride back was an exposed one. Before starting, I adjusted myself on the side of my horse furthest from the enemy and with only one foot holding to the cantle of the saddle and an arm over the neck of the horse exposed, I started at full run. It was only at street crossings that my horse was under fire, but these I crossed at such a flying rate that generally I was passed and under cover of the next block of houses before the enemy fired, 
I got out safely without a scratch. End quote. This equestrian Jason Bourne-esque type action, unfortunately, had no consequences for the battle. The troops he was with in the forward position retreated before ammunition could be supplied. Still, the Americans went on to capture Monterey the following day. The capture of the town did not compel the Mexicans to come to the bargaining table, as General Taylor had hoped. After all, there's 800 miles of mountainous, arid, often harsh desert terrain between Monterey and Mexico City. It wasn't like they were knocking at the door of the National Palace. But this means that Grant, as quartermaster, is about to participate in the most logistically complicated warfare to occur in North America up to that point in history. Again, I'm going to get into this more in subsequent episodes, but for political reasons, President Polk transfers command of the invading army to General Winfield Scott, and Scott comes up with a daring plan. He brings a force of several thousand soldiers down to the Mexican port city of Veracruz by boat. He occupies the town and then cuts himself off from his supply and communications and proceeds inland to Mexico City as a self-contained unit. Here's how Alvin Stouffer, writing for the Quartermaster Review, puts the situation in context. Quote, When the American mail arriving in London in May 1846 brought England its first word of the outbreak of the Mexican War, the Times immediately noted that the United States Army had only 7,200 men as compared with the Mexican Army's 32,000, and was in other respects ill-prepared to wage war. This great English newspaper, which in those years seldom found anything laudable in the United States, then sarcastically concluded that the conquest of a vast region by a state which is without an army would be a novelty in the history of nations. Some days later, in a more realistic mood, it pointed out that the Americans would operate at vast distances from their main supply sources and an uninhabited country lacking resources essential to an army. The want of water, local supplies, or carriage roads, and the scarcity of beasts of burden, it maintained, made a campaign in Mexico a matter of extreme difficulty, not to say impossibility. The organization of a tolerable American army capable of taking the field would be, it predicted, the work not of months, but of years. The logistic problems foreseen by the times were not mere figments of a biased imagination. They were the realities that were suddenly dumped into the lap of Brigadier General Thomas Sidney Jessup, whose quartermaster's department provided the army with clothing and equipage, with horses for the cavalry and the artillery, and with transportation by both land and water, a responsibility that included not only the procurement of river craft, sailing boats, steamships, wagons, carts, horses, mules, and oxen, but also the operation of these means of transportation. No military task was of greater significance than this quartermaster responsibility for transportation. For an army without the means of transportation is an army without supplies and equipment, a toothless aggregation incapable of fighting. End quote. Grant was quartermaster through this all, and in this role he integrates his horse whisperer abilities with his military training. It should be noted in this context he is working primarily with mules, not horses, yes, 
There are some differences, but also a great deal of continuity. In this role, he sees how an army can move when disconnected from a supply base, what it would need, what it would look like foraging for thousands of men, what items were necessities and what could be done without, and also just how nimble and fast an army could become when it didn't need to carry heavy baggage. Grant's love of horses helped him learn just how fast an infantry division could cover a hundred miles. It taught him what kind of hauling capacity an army of several thousand soldiers required. We will see Grant bring these skills and knowledge to the next level with the Vicksburg campaign during the Civil War. We will see him bring it to yet another level when, in the final year of the war, he simultaneously coordinates not just the Overland campaign, but also Sherman's invasion of Georgia, Banks' occupation of Mobile, Crook's and Avril's forays into western Virginia, and Siegel's and Sheridan's invasion of the Shenandoah Valley. Grant won the Civil War because he was able to coordinate supply and move large primary forces covering four far-flung regions of the South. I will suggest here that had he not had an intimate love and knowledge of horses, things might not have turned out the same way. Now to end on a different note, there's one more story that has to be told about Grant and horses. After his presidency, he contributed to the creation of a new breed, known today as the Colorado Ranger. Again, here's Denise. It all started in, in Constantinople, <laughs> believe it or not, in 1878, when uh, Grant was, uh, was touring the world at the time with his family, and he was invited by the Sultan of Turkey, uh, uh, Abdul Hamid II, to uh, visit his royal stables which had uh, over a hundred uh, royal horses there. So uh, Grant was delighted, of course, and took up the, um, the invitation. The Sultan wasn't there himself, but one of his representatives was. So he um, inspected the, uh, the wonderful stallions. And um, then uh, at the end of it, uh, the Sultan's representative said, uh, pick two, General Grant, pick the best two. So General Grant picked two bays, interestingly enough, uh, I think he had a preference for bays, for bay horses, uh, possibly because they were less less of a target for sharpshooters during the war. So with that, uh, the representative of the Sultan said, well, uh, Grant, any other two? <laughs> so Grant then chose another two, and they happened to be greys this time. They were more representative, if you like, of the, um, the stallions in the stables. So uh, then the the representative said, uh, General Grant, they're yours. Um, so uh, Grant was delighted. He had two um, Arab stallions, or Eastern stallions anyway, to add to his stable. So um, they were shipped back to America and in, uh, they arrived in 1879 to great fanfare. Uh, they became very famous. They were called Linden and uh, Leopard. It was a, a direct translation from their um, Arabian names. And um, so uh, people were very interested in, in uh, breeding these horses. And eventually a man called Randolph Huntington, who was based uh, on the East Coast and was trying to uh, breed a, a particular uh, type of American uh, carriage horse. Uh, he thought that these might be just the foundation sires for this kind of a project. So he, um, he brought them to his own 
place. Uh, they, he bred them to uh, some Henry Clay mares and uh, it was a success, but he, he had money pro problems. He was, uh, became bankrupt uh, like Grant. He was ruined by, by a man, of, of, um, he was a secretary called Francis Weeks. So the, the, the stock was dispersed in a way. Um, eventually they ended up in the West. It was really two grandchildren of uh, Leopard and uh, Linda Tree, um, Tony and Patches, who were bought by Mike Ruby, a uh, horseman in Colorado. He bred them to um, some of the, uh, the mares and uh, he found that they were great using horses. Uh, they, had a, they had a lot of cow, as he put it. So, um, so these were these were the foundation uh, horses, foundation sires for the Colorado breed. Uh, it was um, recognised as a breed in the 1830s, and um, I think it was a, would be a fitting um, epilogue to Grant's interest in horses. I think he would have relished the whole idea of his equestrian interests and uh, two of his own horses. Uh, giving rise to a quintessential American breed of horse. You have been listening to Ulysses Under Fire. My name is Henry Cronk. Thanks so much for stopping by. If you liked this episode and want to hear more, please do subscribe. Even better, on Spotify, you can leave me a rating. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, you can leave me a rating and a review. If you want to get in touch with me directly, please send an email to ulyssesgrantpod at gmail.com. Throughout this episode, you heard from Denise Dowdle, author of From Cincinnati to the Colorado Ranger, The Horsemanship of Ulysses S. Grant. You can find a link to that book, along with the other sources cited, in the show notes. That's all for now. Take care, be safe, and watch for my next episode coming soon. <laughs>